Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. We are your hosts, Ambassador Retired Harry Thomas Jr. And I am the Chief Retired again, Alex Morales. Hey, Harry, who do we have today as a guest? We have my good friend of many years, Charles Millard, uh, who is an attorney, uh, pension expert, and he's going to tell us about, we're going to talk a lot about pensions, but also some about national politics and his, his work. So we want to thank you, Charles, for coming on, especially right before Christmas. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Good to be with you, Harry and Alex. Charles, thank you for taking the time and welcome to the spotlight. Charles, where did you go to college and why? (laughs) Well, as you know very well, Ambassador, I went to the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. For listeners who don't know, that's where... Ambassador Thomas also went and where we first met. And I went to Holy Cross partly, I had inertia, meaning or momentum, because my father and his two brothers and my older sister had already gone there. But mostly I went because I really appreciated liberal arts, really appreciated Catholic education, Jesuit heritage, uh, and a real great community at the school, which continues to exist. And you can see it in how long friendships tend to last with people who went to Holy Cross long after they've graduated from the school. That is clearly true. Oh, wow. Charles, uh, it it is our understanding that you were the first director of the U.S. Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation to be a presidential appointee. What were your duties during that time? Well, actually, I was the first one to be um, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, okay. The Pension Protection Act passed in 2006, and the and President Bush named me in 2007. Uh, and the confirmation process, as you know, Harry, uh, can be you know not the easiest or the most pleasant experience in one's life. Uh, you have to uh, basically find every everything you've ever written, every bank account you've ever had, every address you've ever been at, everything you've ever done. Um, and if you think that they're not going to, you know, find it, they're going to find it. Um, and so it's quite an unbelievable uh, experience. And I had um, a particular uh, experience in my own confirmation hearing, which uh, I won't go into a long story, but uh, Senator Mikulski was the chair of the subcommittee doing my hearing. And um, the very morning of the hearing, she put out a statement kind of opposing me, or at least saying, I've got some really tough questions for this guy. Now she's in the other party and they have the majority and they're, you know, ready to mix it up as politics, you know, happens. Um, So, however, I had done some homework. Harry, you asked me why I went to Holy Cross. I mentioned Jesuit education. I was in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps my first year after college with a guy named Nick D'Alessandro, who was the the son and grandson of mayors of uh, Baltimore. So I called him to say, so are the Mikulskis and the D'Alessandros on good terms? Because I want to tell Barbara Mikulski that I 
used to live with Nick D'Alessandro and that I went to Northern or to Little Italy with the old, the original grandfather. And it was like being with a rock star. And he goes, oh yeah, we're on great terms with, with the Mikulskis, especially because she was very helpful at the inauguration of my aunt. His aunt is Nancy, De, Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi. So uh, when I saw that uh, Senator Mikulski was ready to kind of take a few shots at me, I walked up to her and as we began, and what I wanted to say was, what the heck is with this statement? But instead <laughs> I said, so, you know, we've got some common ground. She says, yeah, what's that? And I said, well, I lived with Nick D'Alessandro. I knew old grandpa D'Alessandro. Being with him was like a rock star. I was a community organizer in the Jesuit volunteer corps. Well, I also knew she had been a community organizer and she had been Jesuit educated. So I hit oh, those pretty yeah. hard. And she says, wow, you know, you were a community organizer. That doesn't sound like a Republican. And then she grabs my hand and pats it and she goes, well, that's a good little nugget. Now let's get started. <laughs> and it changed everything. She, she still had her questions, but now she put them like, help me understand this instead of raking me over the coals. So preparing really helps. That was a great story. And I was honored to attend your swearing in done by our other schoolmate, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Um, when I went for the Philippines, Senator Casey, and you know what school he went to, asked me, what's the best college in the world? <laughs> that opened it up and made it easier. But before we go on to the next question, I'm going to ask Alex to ask. Alex doesn't know that Charles was my first ever visitor overseas as a foreign service officer in Peru. Yeah. Oh, he was wow. also my first visitor to Zimbabwe. No, no. Oh, you were there. He and one of his sons came, Daniel. Yep, yep. And oh, so wow. I take all my kids on a trip at some point. The Peru visit was not with one of my children. I wasn't married yet. But um, so so I took Dan to uh, on a safari in mostly South Africa. Um, and we we went to Victoria Falls, which was okay. incredibly right. fantastic, even though it was dry season. And then I said, we're going to go to Harare. And he goes, well, what are we going to Harare for? And I because I always try to have a surprise in the trip. I said, well, we're going to visit a friend of mine from college. So he said, okay, we're waiting at the airport. <laughs> and the vehicle drives up with the flags. And he says, is there something I should know about your friend? I go, oh, yeah, right. By the way, he happens to be the U.S. ambassador. Oh, that is amazing. Yet. Small world. See, Alex? Hey, I, I love Zim. That was uh, Harry said because uh, – I think that out of all my overseas assignments, Zim was the one that touched me the most. And it's talking about about 10 assignments wow. around, around the world. So, yeah, for me, it's a special, special place. My kids love it as well. Awesome. Well, just to briefly answer the other part of your question. So the PBGC guarantees the uh, pensions uh, of corporate America. After Studebaker went bankrupt back in the 50s or early 60s, People said, what do you mean there's no funding in the pension plan? And so ERISA was passed not until the early 1970s, but it created funding rules and it created the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which stands behind the corporate pension. So when Bethlehem Steel, for example, went bankrupt in around 2002, the PBGC takes over the, the assets of the pension plan, but usually the assets are only about half of what's needed. And the PBGC has to make good on essentially the rest of the pension plan. So today it holds about 
I think it has about $100 billion in liabilities and something similar in assets at the moment. And this is also <laughs> private you're talking about, right, sir? Not only... Uh, it does public. not guarantee public sector pension, only corporate. Corporate. Oh, wow. Wow, they know that. Well, to cover the next question, is, uh, I think you covered a little bit, but if you want to touch base it more, what actions does the president and Congress need to take to protect those pensions, in well, your opinion? Right, so, so the defined benefit pension is you know is becoming a thing of the past and there's no law that requires a corporation to have a defined benefit pension in fact there's no law that requires a corporation to have any kind of retirement plan and some companies don't even offer uh, a 401k but the but retirement is a real challenge for america because especially baby boomers are retiring now with with without enough and the the problem with that problem is it's it's not going to be an explosion it's going to be a slow leak right In fact, baby boomer seniors are not going to be in poverty, but they're going to be on Social Security. So there won't be the kind of outcry, but there will be a much lower standard of living for a huge generation. Um, And ways that Congress can address that include um, uh, auto-enrolling people into a defined contribution plan. So there's an auto IRA piece of legislation right now that would say, look, if you're not going to give people a 401k or an, or an IRA, then you got to auto-enroll them in one. And you can get out of the way, but at least they're automatically enrolled in some kind of retirement plan. That's one thought. Another is if you do offer 401k, then you need to be auto-enrolled in something that provides lifetime income. Keep in mind that auto-enrollment always leaves the possibility that you can opt out. So if we're going to put you in a 401k, we're going to, hello, welcome to the company, Alex. You're now in the 401k. You can leave it if you want, anytime. Um, hello, Alex, welcome to the company. You're in the 401k. Oh, and the 401k provides lifetime income. When you turn 65, it'll give you uh, an, automatic, an automatic payout. You can say, no, I don't want that either. But if you ask yourself the question, where should, the, where should we begin? If we say, hey, Alex, you want to be in the 401k? Well, then you have to make the decision to get over the hurdle of understanding retirement planning, et cetera, and say yes. And then you have to get over the hurdle of saying, I want to be in the target date fund. And then you have to get over the hurdle of being in something that provides lifetime income, or we can start there. And then you can make the decision to opt out if you want. So that's an important part of uh, federal policy that's not as strong as it could be. So that's not the DB plan. That's not the defined benefit plan. They're going to continue to go away, but not in the public sector. They're still strong in the public sector. But for retirement security, what I just talked about are some of the legislative uh, initiatives that would help. And I think education is also one of the things, because I don't think a lot of uh, the, the normal American people don't understand what a 401k, 401k is and what was the benefit to have it or what's not. I mean, absolutely. I just wrote something just today saying, if you have to explain to your participants what annuitization means or what stochastic modeling does, or what's a deterministic outcome, you lose. Um, so it has to be simplified, and people do need better education. And there are some uh, movements in the marketplace to provide more financial education to 401k participants. That's not required by law, but some companies are doing that. That's fantastic. So, Charles, what roles do you have today as an advisor on pensions? 
Well, I do a lot of consulting for a variety of firms that care about pensions, pension assets, pension liabilities, software that might help a pension understand its liabilities better. Uh, one company that um, creates product that does provide lifetime income solutions. So, you know, it's not so easy for the employee to know how much should I spend when I get to 65. And this company, uh, th- there was legislation called the SECURE Act that passed a couple of years ago that encourages the use of annuities inside 401k plans. So I advise uh, a company that does that. I'm advising uh, a company that um, has software that helps pensions understand their assets and liabilities together. And I write on some of these issues, some of what we just spoke about, the need to auto-enroll people in life. I wrote a column for Pensions and Investments magazine on that a few months back. And anybody who cares about retirement policy, usually there's going to be something that we might share in common. Who, who is the incumbent today in the job you held under President Bush? Uh, his name is Gordon Hartogensis. And interestingly, he um, was appointed and confirmed, but he was appointed to a five-year term. So mm-hmm. normally, you know, a presidential appointee, you're out when your president is out. And you can stick around, but you'll get fired. Um, I've heard stories of a couple people who kind of hid and weren't discovered until even six months into the next administration. But, you know, most presidential appointees understand that they're not going to serve the next administration. They weren't appointed by them and they, they resigned as I did. But uh, and if I hadn't, of course, you know, the Obama administration would have been well within their rights to say, you know, well, you're gone now. Um, but he has a five year term because they were trying to take away the political aspect. And there wasn't really that much of a political aspect anyway. I mean, the PBGC, from what you've already you know, heard me talk about, is not partisan politics. There are minor issues from time to time that are pro-labor or less pro-labor, but it's not a place where there's lots of partisan politics. In fact, the SECURE Act passed almost unanimously in 2019 in Washington, D.C., where you, know, you can't get people to agree on you know, whether, whether it's a sunny day in Washington, D.C. <laughs> That's incredible. Have you, had, have you had a chance to meet him? Yes. Yeah. He's a smart guy. He's got an investment background. And he has an interesting challenge right now because um, legislation, the ARPA, the, the early legislation as soon as Biden came in, um, created a situation where the PBGC is actually going to be giving special financial assistance to a variety of multi-employer plans, which are very, very underfunded, such as the central states, Teamsters. Um, a lot of these pension plans are very underfunded, and it's essentially it's a bailout, but they have to decide uh, what kind of assets it can be invested in. So he's got a real challenge and an interesting challenge that will make a really big difference. Thank you. Oh, wow. Please, uh, Charles, tell our audience about your tenure as a New York City council member. If you may. Well, I was elected uh, in 1991 um, when David Dinkins was still mayor, and I was reelected in 1993, the year that Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor. So I served under two different mayors, uh, which who both of whom had very very different philosophies and very different outcomes for the city. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I was one of five when I got elected. I was one of uh, five Republicans out of 51. So I was clearly in the minority, and my job really was to be kind of a loyal opposition to 
to find the things that needed to be criticized and criticize them in a way that was, you know, uh, to the point, but, you know, but, but based on substance, not just on, uh, on shouting. Uh, and, and if I were very, very conservative in that role, I wouldn't have gotten anything done. So it was a kind of a moderate opposition from a conservative side. Thank you. I, I'm sorry. I thought it was about break time. Uh, <clears throat> but let's go on. After that, you ran for Congress. Yeah, so I, I won twice for city council, but I ran for Congress in 94 and came in second. I don't like to say I lost, but let's just say I came in second. <laughs> um, and, after, and so that, that was 1994. And, um, you know, that was the year that uh, the Republicans took over Congress. And so if you didn't want the Republicans to take over Congress, then you weren't going to vote for Millard. And the east side of Manhattan didn't want the Republicans to take over Congress. And but it was that, still an interesting experience, I'm sure. Oh, it was fascinating. In fact, uh, Bob Dole did a fundraiser for me. So he just recently died. I have oh, wow. respect for him. He spent a little bit of time doing a fundraiser for me, and I always appreciated that. And I, I keep the photograph of him and me at my uh, fundraiser uh, in my house. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and the Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to the Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. And we're back to the spotlight. Go ahead, Harry. We're back with Charles Millard, my good, good friend. Uh, Charles, New York City will soon have a new mayor, Eric Adams. He just appointed the first female uh, police commissioner, a job that Teddy Roosevelt once held. Mm -hmm. uh, what issues should the new, his honor, the mayor, prioritize? Well, you know, I ran the Economic Development Corporation, so I was essentially commissioner of economic development uh, under uh, Giuliani at a time when New York was being turned around. So it was a great time. And first of all, 
if you have a crummy mayor and the city is in terrible shape, being head of economic development is still a great job. To have a mayor who's really focused on uh, business issues and understands the value of business to a city and is making it safer at the same time, it was a great job. So I did the leases that finished the redevelopment of 42nd Street. I did all the tax incentive deals to keep businesses in the city. I um, did a lot of uh, work with Silicon Alley back before when people thought that was just a typo. They didn't, they had never, they thought it was supposed to be Silicon Valley and it took a long time for the name Silicon Alley to catch on and I did everything that the city, I didn't. My agency was the point agency for everything that New York City did with Silicon Alley. So it was a great job, but it couldn't have succeeded if the mayor hadn't also been making the city safer. And, you know, quality of life and low level crime as well as violent crime are just absolutely crucial to be eliminated to have a safe and, and, and inviting city. And New York really turned around. I mean, I saw it uh, when I first got elected. You know, people were leaving the city in droves, talking about quality of life being terrible. And by the time, you know, that uh, we had, Giuliani did a great job as mayor. I mean, he certainly, you know, his star has you know, it's not as high as it once was, let's say, after <laughs> some activity in the election. But at, when he was mayor, he, he really turned the city around and made it safe in America. And I'm glad that Eric Adams is a former cop because he's going to have a different kind of credibility than any other mayor in dealing with issues, both positive and negative, about um, race relations, about policing, about violent crime. Um, he's going to really have a, 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 an ability, I think, to stand where mayors need to stand. And he was willing to speak that way during the election, um, even during the election where, uh, you know, the electorate in, in New York City mayor race is uh, very liberal. Uh, but he was willing to not be so, so liberal. And usually executives that are extreme and either conservative or liberal don't really function well. You've got to be moderate. You've got to balance the books You've got to actually go to the funerals of cops and people who have ha, had problems. You've got to defend the city, and sometimes you have to admit mistakes. So you can't really be extreme, and I don't think Eric Adams is. Well, well thank you for that. Uh, Alex? Yeah, you, I think you touched it a little bit, but do you mind uh, expanding how the mayor can use uh, the EDC yeah. to help the city? What yeah, so... Thoughts? So there are numerous ways that a mayor can use EDC to help the city. I mean, things like the 42nd Street redevelopment are very high profile, but, you know, they're not something that happens every 10 years. Uh, and I'm not, I don't have a specific project like that in mind. Got it. But the, you know, taxes for businesses in New York City are, are very, very high and they're a complete annoyance. It's almost impossible in New York State and New York City for a mayor to get the taxes lowered. So what can the mayor do? Uh, number one, he can, he can clean up the city. He can get, you know, drug dealers off the streets, all the things we just talked about, low level crime, quality of life. He can also do tax incentive deals to keep businesses in the city. And those can be criticized because some people say, well, what about all the people who weren't going to leave? How come you didn't cut their taxes? Or maybe they just said they were going to leave and they were never really going to leave. Um, and um, actually, on the on the question of maybe they just said they were going to leave, I'll tell you a quick little story, which is 
I had a business that said they were um, going to leave to go to Jersey City. So I happened to know Richard Lefrak, who was the owner of the buildings in Jersey City, where this guy said he was taking his business. So I called him Richard Lefrak and I said, are you really in negotiations with this guy? And he said, yes, I am. So then I knew that he was, that this was a person who was seriously considering leaving the city and we did give it back to Senate, uh, um deal to them. But one of the things that shows is it tells the rest of the businesses, maybe they're not big enough to get a tax incentive deal. Maybe they don't know how to, maybe they weren't going to leave anyway, but it creates an environment that says we care about business. We're business friendly. We may not be able to cut everybody's taxes, but we're doing what we can to make the city more attractive for you. Um, and when we cut one one company's taxes, that may not affect you, but it tells you, it sends a message to you that we're trying to keep businesses here, that we care about them. So I think that's really crucial. Um, and I think, uh, the, there's also a thing called the Industrial Development Agency, which is inside the Economic Development Corporation, and that allows businesses to issue bonds that are tax exempt. Um, that's a that's a real powerful tool for the right business. Now, that's um, the the federal government gives a certain amount of tax free issuance capacity to each city. Well, you have housing development agencies, and you have industrial development agencies. And they're always fighting over what's called volume cap. They're always fighting over who gets to issue the bonds. Um, well, when I was in the, uh, in the government, the deputy mayor felt that you create the jobs and housing will follow rather than creating the housing and jobs will follow. So we got most of the volume cap. And, uh, and that certainly is a way that you can promote businesses and help them issue bonds that would be tax-free. And if they're tax-free, obviously, that means they can pay a lower uh, interest rate than they would otherwise pay because the holder of the bonds doesn't have to pay tax on the income. Well, I think New York is still suffering from the loss of Amazon. Oh. And you see how well it's happened in Virginia and even down here, not saying that Amazon will come back, but are there other things uh, the new mayor and the new head of EDC can do to attract major businesses? Well, one, one big challenge is the politics of being friendly to businesses, right? You had politicians who were just saying, how can you be, you know, giving this away to Amazon? And you say, we're not giving it away. We're getting whatever the number was, 100,000 jobs. Um, but I think that the, um, there's politics in everything. So let's say that Harry was the local politician in the area of Queens where we were going to bring Amazon. I have to either know what he wants and not give it to the deal so he can come in after I've announced the deal and demand it. And then I would say, okay. Or I have to make a deal with him beforehand and say, what do you want? I want you to be on the platform with me when we announce this. So what does it take? Um, and, 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 and you have to do one or two, one of those two things. If you don't, then every deal is subject to the, uh, the attacks that the Amazon deal had. I have heard that Amazon is re-looking at, at still coming to New York, but probably not in the same size that it once was. Um, but there's a lot of essentially political diplomacy required to get those deals done. Why do you think uh, that it was so much friction uh, against Amazon in New York? Just out of curiosity. Uh, Politics. It, it, it was all politics. Politics. Yeah. I mean, it, it. 
So Amazon is a company that do, I think it doesn't have any unions or it maybe has some in a couple of places. But yeah, they're you, working on that. <laughs> if you're all about labor and, you know, people, Democrats in New York tend to be, you know, that's a that's a uh, an issue. Um, and, you know, Amazon is no... 10 years ago, Amazon was as groovy as could be, and everybody on the left loved it. Well, now it's an enormous business. Jeff Bezos is one of the richest people in the world. They use up a lot of carbon footprint in delivering things. Um, They're a behemoth. So now they're big and bad, where they used to be small and cool. So they're big and bad, and they don't like, and and they're, and they they have union issues. If you're a politician in New York and you're trying to get votes from the left, where they, you know, which side of that issue are you likely to pound? Got it. Did Amazon do anything wrong? I think they probably should have made sure to make friends with the politicians that they didn't make friends with before the deal was announced. Thank you. Thank you very much um, for for that. For a moment, can we go back? I think our listeners will uh, benefit from hearing more about the pensions. You said that pension, certain pensions are in the private sector are underfunded. Why and how does that happen? Well, it gets complicated, um, but there are rules about how much the corporation has to put into its pension plan. And those rules provide a a degree of flexibility. Uh, Most corporate plans today are probably 80 to 90% funded. So it's not as bad as it was. What What I did say is many defined benefit plans are going away, meaning they're frozen. In other words, okay, if you, you, if you worked at, I'll just pick, um, uh, I don't know what company to pick. If you worked at, Gen- at, at General Motors um, for the last 40 years, you probably still have a pension. I don't think you're accruing any new benefits, but you would have accrued benefits for, let's say, the first 30 years. And when you get to 65, you're going to have a pension or maybe even earlier than 65. But if you've been working at General Motors for the last 15 years, Again, I don't know the General Motors pension plan. I'm just making this up. But it's likely that you don't have a pension plan. It's likely that you have a 401k. Um, and I see. If you, so in terms of education, if you put, if you have a 401k, you need to be putting at least, at least 10% of your gross pay into the 401k. And wow. you should, if you're under 50, you should be leaving it in a target date fund. They should be in mutual funds. You shouldn't be trying to pick stocks unless you know a lot about that. You should let the target date fund glide you from more equities when you're young to fewer equities, to less in equities as you get older. So there's less risk as you're in your retirement. Um, and you should not be taking money out of that. That's not for buying a house. That's not for a vacation. It's not for your child's wedding. It's for your retirement. And unfortunately, a lot of people you know, need to uh, go into those funds uh, in an emergency, but and uh, of course, if it's really an emergency, uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but you should try to avoid that as much as possible, and certainly not use it for a splurge. And you're seeing this in Chile, where the government has allowed a lot of people to have more access than they probably should have, and the pension system, which was once considered really terrific, is under a lot of pressure as a result. That's, that's an interesting thought that you just mentioned, Charles. So, so what you're saying is 
because a government has uh, make it easier of uh, being flexible to take that money out, it has it had damaged a little bit the stability of the of, of the system. That's what. Yeah, and uh, and and you know, just to think about it for yourself, right? If you have ten thousand dollars saved up, and then you go spend two thousand of it, well, now you only have eight. So if uh-huh. you were going to have, you know, ten percent of ten thousand, you know, paying you regularly, now you have ten percent of eight thousand, or whatever the number might be, right? So as you deplete a corpus that is meant to support you later, you will have less to support you later if you deplete that corpus now. That is, uh, uh, I think, most interesting. Are, uh, why have companies shifted to 401ks and dropped pensions? Well, that's a good question. Um, a lot of workers, younger workers, don't value pensions. So, not having them was not necessarily considered, you know, the kind of thing that would make somebody want to get hired or not get hired. Uh, There's a degree of volatility in pension funding obligations. So if interest, I don't want to get too complex here, but if interest (laughs) rates drop, then the amount I have to put into the pension goes up. Well, with interest rates going, you know, wild and especially going down, excuse me, if interest rates go down, if interest rates drop, but I have to put more in. So with interest rates over the last 20 years going down and down and down, it's become more and more and more expensive for corporations to take on these liabilities. And people are living longer and longer and longer. So what you thought was going to be a 25-year retirement is now a 30-year retirement or whatever the case may be. So the liabilities have gotten bigger as people have lived longer, and they've gotten more expensive as interest rates have fallen. And Younger workers didn't seem to value that enough to make a difference in whether they took a job or didn't take a job. Uh, and so that's probably a pretty powerful combination uh, as to why most DB plans uh, are going away. In the public sector, they remain. Unions are very strong. Labor cares about it. Most people who take a public sector job do understand that there's a pension at the end, and, and that's one of the reasons that they take it. So there's a lot more attention to it. Thank you. I, I, I think one of the, the challenges that I see, and this is my personal opinion, perhaps you can chime in, Charles, is I think the average American who had that disposable income to think about 10, 15, 20 years, and they thinking about the short term versus the long term. How can we perhaps try to change that mentality of, of thinking financially thinking in a long term versus a short term gain? Well, one thing that uh, Social Security does is you get a much higher benefit if you wait till you're around 70 to take it. Um, People really need to understand that most people are likely to live, I don't know what the exact actuarial numbers are, but 25 years after they retire. So you need a, a pile of accumulated uh, cash, as well as Social Security or whatever other uh, assets you might have, to last a long time. And it's interesting. You might think people overspend because they think, hey, I've got 500000 in my 401k. I'm just going to, this is fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a boat and go on vacations and it'll be terrific. It's not really the case. People tend to underspend because they're concerned. 
because they they because they, they're not confident that they have something. That's why I mentioned lifetime income as being so important earlier in my conversation, right? That where I want people to start their four hundred one k is something that is already planning to buy insured products to guarantee a lifetime income. Um, obviously, it'll be a lot bigger for the people who save more, and bigger for the people who uh, receive more compensation. Um, but no matter what the size, it, it, that's the long term. And, you know, the, the need for that kind of education is crucial. Uh, I, I think um, every high school student in America should have to take a course that includes critical consumption of financial information. And with critical consumption financial information, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and the Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to the Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the Spotlight. And we're back with the Spotlight with Mr. Charles Miller. Go ahead, Harry. <clears throat> now I'm going to throw it back to you, uh, Alex and Charles, because I think you wanted to I have Charles explain why financial literacy for high school students and college students was so important. Yeah, yeah. Please, Charles, can you please talk about, because I always said that if I, if somebody would sit me down when I was in 12th grade, you know, and I senior and say, hey, listen, here's 101, money 101 that you need to think about if you want to think. I, I, I always say joking, I'll be a millionaire, but, you know, can you please talk to the audience about how important it is? Well, think about the things that we require of people, right? We require people to wear a helmet while riding a motorcycle, right? Why? Not only to protect them, but to protect society against having to have them become kind of a ward of the state or or increasing everybody else's health care costs because of something that was irresponsible. Um, think of the difference between a person who understands something about money, a person who saved, let's say, um, two people who start their career making 
$35,000 a year and end their career making $150,000 a year. And one of them saved and one of them didn't, right? Yeah. The one who didn't is going to have Social Security, which is going to pay him something like $35,000 a year. The one who did is going to be able to retire if, if he or she did it properly at, let's say, 50 or 60% of their final income. Well, if you're going to retire, you know, you were making 150 and you're going to retire at 70 plus Social Security, well, that's a pretty good retirement. That's good for the economy. That's good for your own need for healthcare because people who have more money tend to be more healthy, either because they have better access to healthcare or because for whatever reason, they're able to care for themselves better. Lots of reasons we can imagine. But think of how much better it would be for society if the if the person I imagined a moment ago had also saved. Incredible. No, I think you, you make a good point. <laughs> uh, Charles, earlier you spoke about Chile. Uh, we understand that you have international experience. Uh, you can comment on the challenges faced in the UK, Australia, and the Netherlands. Uh, yeah, so... So the Netherlands has a pension system that is usually considered the best in the world. And what's really interesting about it is it's actually not a defined benefit system. It's a collective defined contribution system. It's like a defined benefit system, except that the plan sponsor doesn't guarantee it. So, you know, General Motors guarantees the payment of the pension benefits to its employees. In the Netherlands, the employer doesn't guarantee it, but there's still someone investing all the money and paying out a pension. That pension can vary a little bit. It, if the investments don't do well or if the liabilities grow because interest rates have fallen, you might have your $100 a year pension be only $97 at some point. But compare that to a defined contribution plan where in the United States, if you're in a defined contribution plan, you're on your own. You haven't pooled your longevity. That's the beauty of defined benefit pension plans and the beauty of collective defined contribution plans is the people who die early subsidize the people who die late. And we collectivize all kinds of risks in the world. That's what healthcare insurance is. That's what auto insurance is. That's what life insurance is. So we need to also collectivize the risk of longevity, the risk of outliving your savings. And the, the Netherlands system does that. Interestingly, uh, the system in Australia, known as superannuation, does not do that. They pool all the investments, but they're very the, the the corpus you receive or you achieve by the time you're 65 is notably larger than in most countries because it's required. Remember, I said you have to put 10% a year in, no matter what of your gross. Well, Australia required that employers put aside 9%, and I think it either went to 12 or is going to 12. So if all the employees are all saving nine to twelve percent, and they're pooled in a in an investment uh, vehicle that's professionally managed. You're gonna they're gonna have a very significant um, sized uh, uh, pension account when they retire. They what they do with it is an issue in Australia. Should people you know do you want to go buy the boat as we talked about before, or do you want to have a guaranteed lifetime income? And that's kind of an issue in the Australian plan is how do we encourage sensible spend down? The UK used to require that you buy an annuity when you get to 65. Uh, and then they stopped requiring that. And they passed a bill a couple of years ago that would allow the use of collective defined contribution systems similar to the one in the Netherlands. Um, so 
I've actually written a, an academic paper with Georgetown University on the benefits of collective defined contribution and the principal benefit I've already stated, which is the people who die early subsidize the people who die late. Thank you very much. That's impressive. That's kind of made me think about pension a different way now. I never thought about it, you know. Well, Charles, you, you maintain an interest in government. How do you grade the Biden administration, success or failure? Well, I'll give you one of each. I don't know that I'm in a position to grade anybody's administration. I would say um, success is changing the tone. I mean, whether you're left or right, you, you have to recognize the tone has changed. I'm sure there are people on the right who don't agree with some of what's coming from the left side of Washington these days, but the tone is certainly different, and this and the degree of sanity at the top is, you know, notable. And I would say that uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is a failure. And I, you know, I have some foreign experience. I don't really have foreign po policy experience. Actually, I do have a little. Way back when, right after college, I was a legislative assistant for foreign affairs for Millicent Fenwick, who was a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. But I don't think that gives me standing or expertise 30 some odd years later to try to opine about foreign policy, except to say I thought the Afghanistan withdrawal was embarrassing and that we're going to be paying for it for a long time. Uh, Charles, I am fascinated by the pensions. Uh, you may know that in the government, we have the thrift savings program, right? Um, which was controversial 40 years ago when it began, but has now made many people 401k millionaires. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's the world, it's one of the world's largest pension uh, systems. Uh, and it is, it, I forget how big it is, it's enormous, um, but it's really a gigantic 401k system. Uh, it's a defined contribution system. I, don't, I assume the government probably matches, but it's so automated that people just naturally end up in that system. I don't really know if it's, uh, if it's opt out, but the federal workers have benefited tremendously from that. It is, um, everybody's opted in, but yeah. when you start, you you're in it. You don't have to match. But the government will put a percentage in even if you do not. So you know what? And I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So in other words, where a four hundred one k usually the employee puts in and the employer matches. In this federal thrift, the employer puts in and the employee may or may not, depending on whether they want to. Yeah, but the the employer will put in a very small amount, and I don't. I, you know, I I retired, so it may have changed. So I'm very careful with the numbers. But when it began, if you put if you put in zero, the federal government still put in one percent. Um, but people can put five to ten percent. And there's a catch up once you're 50 or 55 where you right. can put in more. Yeah. 401k is a lot of that, too. And um, it has made uh, government employees when and if you know they choose to retire um, should not end up being on the dole um, right. because of such a, a program that started out with one or two things that you could invest in to where now you can, in, it's almost like one of the uh, online stock exchanges, the, the opportunities that you have. Yeah, the military, yeah, they don't but, match it, but the civilian side, they do. 
but it grows tax-free and you can put in as much as 10%. That's pretty good, right? And if you understand that and you do it, then you're the good guy in the example I described before and not the bad guy. Yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great thing. Really great thing. Charles, you would have hated me because I closed my <laughs> my Tristan plan because I was one of those guys that didn't have that spendable income back in the day. <laughs> but I didn't have the education either. I wish I had it. Now what I know now. Though. Well, there's still time. You're going to live a long time. Indeed, sir. Indeed. Got will. Hey, Charles, let's go back to the economy right now. Let's, let's pass by and talk about what can – be done to control the spiral prices and the inflation, in your opinion? Well, I think that there's a lot of good in the infrastructure bill that was recently passed. But I think in general terms, I'm not going to get into all the specifics of the bill back there. But, you know, more spending by the government right now is really not what's what's needed on the on the question of inflation. That's the question that you asked me. Um, Similarly, um, you know, Paul Volcker slay, you know, slew the inflation beast by insisting that he was going to raise rates as much as it took to raise them. And it was pretty painful. Now, when he began, I don't remember what inflation was, but, you know, mortgage rates were as high as, you know, 16 or 17, 18 percent. So to bring them down to, you know, 10 year, six or seven years later, maybe to bring them down to seven or eight percent, which was still high, but, you know, uh, you know, took raising rates and biting the bullet and inflation it's the it's a pay cut and people you know it's interesting um alex you talked about having financial education as a political matter i think a lot of people don't understand don't don't dig into inflation as the responsibility of the government because they just think well prices are going up where the reality is the government determines how much the government's going to spend and we're talking about multi-trillion dollars while we know there's inflation. And we're talking, we're, you know, just now the Fed uh, in December made it clear that they intend to raise rates in yeah. next year. So that, I think, is good. I'm not a, I don't want rates to go up, but I think they have to go up. And those are two simple things, right? And keep in mind, as far as Build Back Better, there's a ton of pandemic spending that hasn't been spent yet. States have received many, many billions of dollars but they haven't even spent yet. So there's plenty to go around and more is probably not the answer if you're concerned about inflation. And the last point is once inflation's out of the bottle, it's very, very hard to get it back. Government policy doesn't just get it back. You bite the bullet and you have the recession that we had in the early 80s because that's what it took to, to stop inflation. So I would be very much an advocate for doing what we can to stop inflation sooner rather than later. Okay. Charles, on a lighter note, as we uh, come to the end, who's the better golfer, you or your brother, Christopher? (laughs) Well, that's a much debated question, Harry. I'm glad you asked. Um, Lifetime, there's no contest. Uh, Lifetime, I played on the Holy Cross golf team, and I've won a few low-gross tournaments in my life. Chris has not won any low gross tournaments, at least that I know of. And he didn't play on the golf team at Holy Cross. I'm certain of that. However, he can beat me quite handily today. So lifetime, me, today, him. What's your handicap? 
about 12. Used to be better. Oh, oh that's not bad. <laughs> so you can play with us, right, Harry? <laughs> well, he would, he would wax us. <laughs> he, he, would, he would wax us. We have no business playing with uh, um, Mr. Millard. Oh, I, I think golf, I always say, I, I was an athlete as well, and I always said golf is the first sport that literally has humbled me as an athlete. Because uh, I would do a great tee shot, and then I would like three or four pots <laughs> or mess well, up. The, the, it's the also thing. humbling, you know, to go back to the question, right? I used to beat Chris all the time. It was, there was no question who was better. And now there's still no question who is better because he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charles, you've been so kind with your time. We have learned a lot. I thank you so much for taking the time and being in the spotlight. And hopefully we meet us in person and play some golf and you can see how bad we play. Go ahead, Harry. <laughs> uh, no, thank you, Charles. But would you? is there a Christmas, New Year's message you'd like to give our listeners? Please. Yeah. Um, we, we talked about my brother. Uh, I come from a family of eight kids, and I have nine children. Uh, so I care a lot about family. And I think that uh, Christmas is a special time to think about family. Uh, I wish everyone uh, the gift of love and peace and the knowledge of salvation that comes from Christmas. And I think that uh, the more we can think about the real meaning of Christmas, the better we would all be. Take us out, well, at Holy Cross, we're always taught to say Christmas, never Xmas, never take Christ out of Christmas. Correct, correct. So we are going to wish all of our listeners Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, peace on earth. Thank you for listening to us this year. We wish you all the best, and especially the listeners from the College of the Holy Cross. Alex. This was the Spotlight with the Ambassador-in-the-Chief. Thank you for tuning in to the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.